Romans chapter 5 again this morning. Looking into the details of God's plan of salvation. It's given to us through the Apostle Paul. We've been talking about justification in the last few chapters, really starting in verse 21 of chapter 3. Justification, the crediting of God's righteousness to us, is by faith and faith alone. Paul has made that abundantly clear in these chapters, stressing the importance of faith and belief by using those words some 27 times since we started talking about justification, and I read through that list last week with you, and I won't do it again this week. But a sinner, the ungodly, those whom he presented to us in the first chapters of the letter from verse 18 of chapter 1 down through verse 20 of chapter 3, have no righteousness of their own. As members of mankind, of the human race, we all stand before God condemned. We all stand before him without any type of righteousness that would measure up to his righteousness, that would allow us to be called worthy of any kind of relationship with him. And even beyond that, mankind doesn't want a relationship with God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. Left on his own, mankind rejects God. He may claim that God is important to him from time to time, but with the way that he lives his life, he really shows that not to be true. Without the intervening work of God on his behalf, he is really seeking after his own glory. Paul told us that Man denies God even though he knows full well that God exists. He lives his life running from God so that he can basically pretend to be the God of his own life. And so that's where justification comes in. God is just. He is absolutely just, absolutely righteous. And therefore, for anyone to be able to be in any kind of relationship with him, reconciled to him, the righteousness of God must be credited to that person's account. How is that credited to a person's account? Through faith, trusting in what God has done for us. Early on, we saw how that worked. Back in chapter 3, in the first verses of this section, there, uh, the section that we're currently in, he detailed this for us. He said in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. In verse 22, we saw that, as we've been saying, that it's manifested through faith in Jesus Christ. He reminded us of our spiritual condition in verse 23, that we don't measure up to the glory of God. All have sinned. And so in verse 24, we saw that justification is a gift. It was freely given by God through the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. The one who, he said in verse 25, was the propitiation for sins, the one who could satisfy the requirement of God's wrath, turning that wrath away by providing his own body as a sacrifice that would take care of sins past, present, and future, all sins. And then in verse 26, we saw that it was a work of God, the just and the one who justifies, that brings this all about. This is the nutshell around God's plan of salvation and, and how God provides his plan, the requirements of which for the sinner is trusting or believing in this plan and nothing more than that. That's our part in that. So it's by grace through faith. And then as we saw last time in the beginning of chapter 5, he started to talk about what happens to those who have trusted in this marvelous plan. 
He started off verse 1 of chapter 5 saying, Therefore, having been justified, as those who have been justified, believed in the plan and been credited with the righteousness of God, what now? What happens now? Well, remember, we talked about bursting through that wall, right? The Kool-Aid man bursting through the wall. The old side was the side of sin and ungodliness, the side of animosity and wrath. The other side, the side that we find ourselves in now, having come through the wall, is a side that has certain characteristics that Paul lays out for us here in these early verses. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are now on the side of peace with God, no longer at war or having animosity with God. Remember before, we wanted nothing to do with God. Paul says in Ephesians that we were dead in our sins. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. And God had wrath towards us. God was angry with us. When we get to chapter 9, we'll even see the word hatred used in chapter 9. There was a great chasm that was brought about by our unrighteousness, our ungodliness and sin. But now... As those who have been justified by faith, we are at peace with God. The enmity has ended and we have a peaceful relationship with Him. Furthermore, Paul said in verse 2 that through faith, that same faith that saved us, we now stand in the grace of God. God provides us with all that we need, all that we could ever hope for. In Ephesians, again, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about how God lavishes the riches of his grace upon us. So instead of animosity, there is now an outpouring of his grace. And along with that comes our reason to confidently rejoice. He mentioned two things that we rejoice in. We see the, we'll see the third thing today. But we confidently rejoice, or we exult is the word used, in the glory of God. The glory that we know will be ours someday when he returns and transforms these bodies of sin into perfect bodies. And we also exult, he said, in our tribulations. Not because we love the hardship, not because we love it when bad things happen to us, but because we understand that it's through them that God is perfecting us, that he's maturing us, that he's bringing us uh, growth. Through trials, we persevere. Through trials, we prove our character, resulting in what? More hope. A hope that is perfected and shows that God is working in our lives. That hope, Paul says, is a hope that does not disappoint. The other kind of hope, hope that we place in things here, hope that we place in people, in teams, I won't talk about yesterday, weather, you name it. That's hope that can and often does disappoint us. But the hope that we have in God and in his plans for our lives, our future, that is a hope that will never disappoint. That's assurance. You understand that? We talk about assurance of salvation. That's what we're talking about here. That's assurance of our salvation. If you are a believer, you stand in the grace of God. You have a hope in the future that does not disappoint, that will never fail. What does that mean? It means that your salvation is assured, assured for all eternity. 
We'll see this more when we get to chapter 8. That unbreakable chain of salvation means that there isn't anything that can take you out of God's hands. And that includes you. You can't take you out of God's hands. Once saved, once you have been justified by God, you are now forever in Him. And that is what that non-disappointing hope means for us. How do we know? How can we be sure of this? Well, the last part of verse 5 is what we looked at last time. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have God's love poured out on us through the Holy Spirit. This is the manifestation of God's love, not simply a feeling on his part, but this is a love that did something for us. It provided a sacrifice for us. Having believed, it sealed us with his spirit. It's a love that will endure forever. The Holy Spirit now lives within our hearts, in the hearts of his children. So that's what we've seen so far. This is pretty remarkable stuff that we've seen from Paul here. The loving plan of God given to us as a gift by his grace, unmerited, undeserved in any way. And now as we come to verse 6 of chapter 5, we'll see just how unmerited it was, how undeserved it was. I mentioned last time that as Paul goes through really the book, but through this section here especially, there's some back and forth that he gives us here. He takes us forward, and then we look back from time to time, always reminding us to remember where it was that we come from. And here he's going to do that again. We now stand in his grace. We look forward to that time when we will be glorified because we know that the love of God exists within our hearts. He has poured that out in us. But how did he manifest his love to us? Well, that's what we're going to see starting in verse 6. You note again here that the verse starts off with one of his connecting words, for, for while we were helpless. So this is a continuation from what he said before, tying this in with the guarantee of love that has been poured out in us, and we're going to get an idea of the magnitude of the love that he has shown for us. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When talking about the love of God, that has a tendency to become this nebulous thing for people. You talk about the love of God and people bring out all kinds of different things as they understand God's love. People talk about God's love, what do they mean by that? It means different things to different people. Some people might want to talk about God's love in the terms of, oh, the the warm sunshine. It's like warm sunshine, or it's like the cool rain, or it's like rainbows or something like that. These are nice things to talk about, but there's no real substance to these discussions. And more importantly, they're devoid of any responsibility on the person's part. If I talk about God's love and compare it to something like sunshine, then that's just a pleasant thought and has no connotations that might make me admit to any personal guilt that I might have. As you can imagine, that's not where Paul takes this discussion. No, when we talk about the love of God, we have to talk about what? We have to talk about our own previous condition. We have to talk about our helpless condition before him. 
Why? Because that shows us just how much he really loved us. Helpless. He uses the word helpless here. This is a word that means weak. We had no power. There was nothing in any of us that could repair our condition before God. Nothing. All the things that we talked about in the first verses of the chapter, the peace, the grace, the exaltation, the glory, the hope, the perseverance, the proven character, all of that, none of it is our doing. None of that comes from us. Why? Because we were helpless. We had no power to fix our own condition. We had no way out of the hopeless, helpless condition that we were in. But God, remember those two little words from Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But God provided the means himself in spite of our own weaknesses, in spite of our own helplessness. God provided the means. What did he do? Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This was his greatest act of love. He died for us. And it's not just for us. We use that phrase a lot, right? Christ died for us. But that's not what he says. He says, Christ died for the ungodly. There are a few words throughout this section that you really need to take note of, that you should probably circle or underline in your Bibles, because these show the depth of the act of love with which he had for us. We have two of them right here in verse 6, helpless and ungodly. Down in verse 8, he'll use the word sinners. In verse 10, we have enemies. You know, when people talk about God's love, they usually don't like to talk about these kinds of words. They don't like to talk about their own condition. Talk about God's love with respect to your own helplessness, your own ungodliness. Talk about God's love with respect to your own sin or the fact that you are an enemy of God. That's usually not what people are comfortable talking about. They don't want to go there. Oh, let's just talk about God's love. Okay. But you have to understand the love of God reached down and provided a sacrifice for you. Why did it provide a sacrifice for you? Why did he do that? Because you were helpless and ungodly. This is going to back to chapters 1 through 3. This is Paul reminding us where we were before we were justified. Even in, in chapter 4, verse 5, he was very straightforward with it in talking about Abraham, where he said, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Who does God justify? It's not the righteous. God doesn't justify righteous people. Why? Because, first of all, there aren't any righteous people. And second of all, if there were, they wouldn't need justification. Who is justified? It's the ungodly. Those who come from that pool of fallen sinful humanity that he was talking about in the initial chapters. If you're going to understand the magnitude of the love that God had for you, you need to understand just how bad off you really were. You were under wrath, disobedient 
totally unrighteous. All of that applied. So that's the first thing to understand. God didn't show his love to the lovable. He showed his love to the unlovable. Now he uses a phrase here to talk about the timing of this sacrifice. He says at the right time. And there's some debate over whether, whether, what, are that, what exactly that means, but I think he's indicating here that this was all part of his sovereign plan. Turn with me over to the book of Acts for a minute. Acts chapter 2. Where Peter is giving his sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, down in verse 22, he says this, Acts 2, 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, it's not a specific day in history that, that's really being talked about there. It's simply that it was fulfilling the plan of God. Peter says that it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, will go on to say, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that, we, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The fullness of the time, at the right time, according to God's predetermined plan, Christ came to earth to die for the ungodly. So this is what he's getting at here. You can go ahead and turn back to Romans 5. The depth of God's love in that he came to earth to die, not for those who were worthy of his love, but for the unworthy. It's truly an amazing thought if you stop to think about it. Dying for those who are ungodly. We talked about it some when we were back in chapter 3, talking about the free gift of grace that was given when God didn't have to do it at all. And quite frankly, there's a degree of awe and wonder that makes us ask, why did he do it? Or even should he have done it? He came to earth to die for those who didn't deserve it. To die for those who deserved nothing more than an eternity in hell. That's utterly remarkable when you stop to think about it, but that's exactly what he did. And in verses 7 and 8, what we have is Paul developing this concept, showing us the depth of just what is happening here and the rationality behind uh, his argument in this. He's going to, what he's going to do in the following verses is take us to an argument that involves what they call the greater and lesser truth. And it's going to be if, if God is going to do a greater thing for us, then he will certainly do a lesser thing for us. If somebody's going to go through the trouble of doing all of this, then they're going to continue on with it or they're going to do something else with it as well and the idea here is going to be if God is going to die for us when we were sinners when we were ungodly then surely he will save and keep us just like we saw back in the opening verses if he's going to die to save us then he will also keep us so that's really the construction of the argument but to start it off in verse 7 he's he'll show us how remarkable it is that God would send 
his son to die for sinners. So verse 7, it says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now in this verse, he mentions two kinds of people here, two kinds of men. And really for the purpose of the argument, there's no real significant difference between the righteous man or the good man in his argument here. The idea, the idea is someone who would be considered good or worthy. Now, we know that no one is good or righteous apart from God, but that's not really what Paul's getting at here. What he's basically saying is it's rare that someone would lay down their life for another person, someone that they would consider worthy of it. But on the rare occasion, someone would sacrifice themselves for a good man. Someone would sacrifice themselves for someone that they thought was worthy. There are stories, right? You hear stories from time to time of, of men in combat, war stories, right? Where somebody throws themselves on a live grenade to save all their buddies around them, right? I mean, it's, a, it's a, an act of heroism, an act of bravery. People that are on their side that they would consider themselves worthy of dying for, they throw themselves on that grenade. Or you might hear about a father who would confront a burglar, right, in the middle of the night and, and lose his life protecting his family, right? Obviously, considering his family someone who is worthy of, of his sacrifice. And that's really what, the, what Paul is making here, the point he's making here. It doesn't happen often, but someone might die for a righteous man or a good man. Someone would dare even to die. So that's the type of thing that when we think of someone sacrificing themselves for someone else, that's what we would expect. Oh, he gave his life for them. They must have been worth it. They must have deserved it. So that's really the point of verse 7. But then we come to verse 8, and we see that with God, that wasn't the case at all. But God, see, once again, we have the but God contrast here. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This now takes it to that whole new level. An entire other unfathomable situation. Here we see what God did in dying for us, right? And again, we say us all the time, but who were we? We were sinners. We were not the good or the righteous men that he's talking about or that he mentions in verse 7. What God did wasn't that same situation. When it says Christ died for us, he died for sinners. Really, this takes us back to the end discussion that we had in chapter 3 and the verses before we got to our justification section. The Old Testament quotes that Paul used when he was talking about the condemnation of man, where he talks about none being righteous, none who seeks for God, uh, none who does good, mouths full of cursing and bitterness, the path of peace they have not known, no fear of God. This was who Christ died for. People, again, like to temper the sacrifice that God made and try to make it out to be something that it's not. People say, well, God died for you because you were worth it. You were worth something to him. No. No, you weren't. You see, that would be the verse 7 situation. That's the contrast of what he really did. You weren't worth anything at all. Remember Romans 3.12. One of the things he said there, he said, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. 
That word useless was worthless, no value. God didn't send his son to die for those that had value. He sent his son to die for those who didn't, those who had become valueless. This is Paul showing us here the depth, the magnitude of God's love. He died for sinners. He died for those who were opposed to him. He died for those who hated him. That is who he suffered and died for on the cross. Again, people talking about God's love, right? They don't mind talking about his love, but they like to avoid talking about our sin, our own worthless condition before him. They don't mind talking about how God loves them and how God will save them, how God will allow them to spend eternity with him. But then you try to talk about the depths of that love and they get uncomfortable. Well, I wasn't really that bad. I wasn't really, I was basically a good person. I wasn't as bad as someone else. You understand, if you were a good person, Christ wouldn't have had to die. That's how he showed his love. He didn't just throw open the gates of heaven and say, party for everyone, come on in and spend eternity up here with me. That's how many people view God's love. But that's not how it worked. You know, we talk about special kinds of love. We talk about degrees of love. Um, People today, well, people, not just today, but we talk about parents loving their children, for example. They have a baby, they bring it home, they love it, they take care of it, right? That's a normal kind of love, right? We all understand that kind of love, and that's the way that it should be. Right? You love the child that you bring home. But then you hear about someone who adopts a child and how they went out of their way to find this child and the expense that they had to go through to adopt it and the legal wrangling that they had to go through to adopt a child. And most of us would agree that's a, that's a special kind of, of love. And I'm certainly not saying that, that loving children that are born to you isn't special. That's not where I'm going with this. But loving a child that isn't your own, that you could say you had no obligation to, that it would have been much easier for you from a personal standpoint if if you hadn't even have tried to take that on. Loving that child, we might say, goes above and beyond, right? We just look at that and we say, "That's that's a little above and beyond. But even that's a different perspective than what we have here. Even, Even that, that doesn't even go close to what God did. That kind of love, you could still say, was like in verse 7, right? Where you could see that child was good, that child had some value, that child was, was worth something. But the love that Christ had for us goes even beyond that. It really goes way beyond that. This is God going out and finding his enemy, finding someone who hated him, finding someone who had turned aside from him and had no fear and no respect for him. And he shows that person the same love that he would have shown them as if they were his very own. This is over and above, above and beyond. This is the level of love that we probably can't even fully comprehend. We think about our enemies. We think about somebody in prison that's in in jail for a horrible, horrible crime. And we think, I would have nothing to do with them. Would I sacrifice myself for that person? Most of us, honestly, would probably say, 
let them rot there, right? Because in our minds, in my mind, there's a level of why would we do something for them? And when we think of Christ and what he did for us, there's that level of why would he do that for us? Why would he die for those who were sinners, who had cast him off, who had offended him to the level that they had, totally and completely rejected him? Why would he do that? Because that's the love of God. God demonstrates his love toward us. If you have believed in the cross of Christ, his saving work to provide for your atonement, your redemption, then you have had this love poured out into your heart. That's what he was talking about back up in verse 5. You have experienced this love firsthand, received all the benefits of this love, and have become the child of God. You, know, you now understand what you were before and what you are now as his child because of his love. And you know firsthand what the love of God is, sending his son to die on the cross for you. What a remarkable, unfathomable demonstration of love. And I keep using these words, and I could probably come up with some other words, but you get the point. This isn't normal, quote-unquote normal. And by that, I simply mean it's not normal human type of love. Not the normal way that we would think of love or that we could say that we could even love someone because this is a love that transcends us. This is a love that comes from God. As believers, as we study his word and have experienced this love firsthand, we understand it more. We have a much better appreciation and understanding of it, but this is a level of love that far surpasses anything that we could come up with with on our own, anything that we can even imagine on our own. It's now a level of love that has been poured out in us and is now a part of us, part of our new life in Christ. Well, now, he continues on then in verse 9, and he says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So now here, with his greater and lesser argument that I mentioned earlier, we've seen the greater, that he died for us. Now, we know that he will keep us. And that's really the logic behind the argument that Paul's using here. So he says, much more then. So he's transitioning to the, the lesser part of the argument. Having now been justified by his blood, he says. Now wait a minute. Justified by blood, by his blood. I thought justification was by faith. Now he says it's by his blood. So is that different? No, it's not different at all. Last week, remember, I told you that by this point in Paul's argument here, we should have it firmly fixed in our minds that justification is by faith and faith alone. That's why I read you those 27 times that he uses the word faith. And that hasn't changed we should have that fixed in our minds that justification is by faith. So how does this fit in? Justification by his blood. Well, Paul's not changing his mind here. Justification is by faith. But what's it faith in? It's in the finished work of Christ on the cross. In the redemption that he provided. Redemption provided through what? Through his blood. 
we have, what have we been talking about? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What was required in order for justification to be brought to us? The death, the blood of Christ. That's what we're talking about here. Justification is by his blood because without the death of Christ on the cross, there is no redemption. There is no propitiation. There is no justification of the ungodly. There would be nothing to put our faith in if that was the case. But that's not the case, as Paul is making abundantly clear here. Christ died for our sins, and when we believe in that work of his, we are justified in his sight. This is the greatest work that he he could have done for us. So now, end of the verse, what does that mean? What comes along with that? We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We are no longer headed for God's wrath. What does this tie back to? Where have we seen this before? Back up in verse 2. We exult in hope of the glory of God. And then also in verse 5, hope does not disappoint. This is why we have hope. Why we have assurance of our salvation. I mentioned that a little bit before. To say that God would save you, but that you could lose your salvation is an impossibility. And Paul is really showing that right here in this, in this section. If you could lose your salvation, then that is to say that God could send his son to die for you and allow you to believe in that work and then justify you, credit your belief in his son, uh, son's work to your account, wipe out your sins and apply his work to your ledger, make you a recipient of his grace, make you stand in his grace, allow you to have hope that doesn't disappoint. But then something could come along and just erase all that. Make you once again headed straight for God's wrath. What's that saying? That's saying that either you or something else could do something that could undo what God did for you. Turn with me over to Romans 8. I mentioned it earlier. We're going to look there. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. We'll get here in due time, but I I want you to see this now. Because it may be a while before we get to Romans 8. But look down at verse 31 of Romans 8. Romans 8.31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? Now, Last week I read to you a couple of verses preceding this, right? Where Paul gives us the unbreakable chain of salvation. The last link of that chain being glory that we were talking about. Right? The glory that we were talking about in chapter 5. If God would do that, if God would give us that unbreakable chain, who or what could break God's unbreakable chain? And that's where he goes next. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? If God justified you, if he took away your sins and credited righteousness to your account, who reverses that? Who can come in and say with their red marker, nope, there are still sins on that account? 
This is a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. No one can. And who does that include? To answer that, skip down to verse 37. We won't look at this whole section, but look down at verse 37, where Paul starts to sum this section up. He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And there again, we have that love, that same love that was poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that unfathomable love that we're talking about in chapter 5. We conquer through that love. Now look at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what this list is here? This is a complete list. This is an absolutely exhaustive list that Paul gives us here. You can't find anything that this list doesn't cover. And if you could, and if you thought that you could, he adds that last phrase there, nor any other created thing. What is there other than God that hasn't been created? Nothing. That, that's really all he had to say. Nothing created. So what's the point? The point is that what God has justified, what he has saved, what he has poured his love into through the Holy Spirit will never be separated from God. But what if I change my mind? What if I say I'm no, I long, no longer believe? Are you on that list? Yes, you are. The point is that a believer never changes their mind, could not change their mind and become unsaved. Now, for anyone that claims to believe and then refutes that claim later, that would be a good indicator that they never truly believed in the first place, were never saved at all. But that's not the same as losing your salvation. Once you have been saved, one who has been saved, justified by God, losing that salvation is not possible. Okay, back to chapter 5. That was a bit of an aside, but it fits in well, I think, with what Paul's talking about here. For the believer, this is all part of what we exult in. This is why we have hope. As those who have been justified, there is absolutely nothing that will ever keep us from seeing the glory of God, being glorified with him someday. And as a part of that, we have that last half of verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The wrath that we talked about in the early chapters, that is no longer in store for those who are justified. The wrath that he had said we were storing up for ourselves in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He mentioned that in, in verse 5 of chapter 2. That wrath we will be saved from. Those stores of wrath have been cleared out for us, have been wiped out. All that we stored up in the time that we had with our unrepentant hearts, that has been wiped clean. No longer associated with us. Paul talks about us being saved from wrath in other places, notably in his letter to the Thessalonians, both letters to the Thessalonians. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when talking to the church at Thessalonica, he says this, starting in verse 9. He says, For they themselves, and the they themselves are other churches in Macedonia and Achaia. So these other churches report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5 of that same letter, in verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes to this heavily persecuted church in Thessalonica, He's assuring them of that same ultimate outcome that he's telling the Romans about. We are no longer headed for God's wrath, but for rescue, for salvation from that wrath. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians. I want you to see this passage here. In 2 Thessalonians, the church's situation hasn't improved. Um, They are still heavily persecuted. In fact, there are parallels here that we don't have time to look at. But in verse 4 of chapter 1, he talks about their perseverance in the face of their persecutions and afflictions, which goes along with the tribulations that Paul said that we exult in in our passage from last time. And there's a whole end times theme here in this section that we're not going to delve into. But what I want you to get here is the, is the gist of where this is going. And look down at verse 6 with me. Paul will talk, he's really talking about two different paths. He's talking about it, it's an us versus them kind of situation. Those who are justified and those who aren't. And look what he says in verse 6. He says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here he's talking about those who do not obey the gospel, those who are persecuting the church in this specific situation, those who are sinners, who are ungodly, who are lost in their sins. This is what's in store for them. What was in store for us prior to our belief, our being saved? They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. But what else happens at that time? Look at verse 10. He says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Here in verse 10, here's the flip side, the justified side, if you will. What's going on with the justified, with the saints? Glory. Him being glorified in his saints is our glorification when he is revealed. That's what's in store for believers. Not wrath. The wrath is going to be for whom? Those who disobey the gospel. But for those who believe, we are rescued from that wrath. So back in Romans chapter 5, this is what Paul is saying here, the same idea here. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is what we have been placed into through the process of justification. Salvation. Salvation from the wrath of God through the death of Jesus Christ. That's what has been provided to us. We will not experience wrath, but we will experience glory. There's only the two paths. That's it. There's not a third option. You're either going to experience condemnation and wrath or glory. That's it. Now in verse 10, we have really a parallel verse here. 
he basically says the same thing in this verse, just in a different way. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. A couple of things that we note right off the bat here. First, we have our fourth word, enemies. We were helpless, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were enemies. Once again, not an innocent pool of humanity. That's not the picture that we get here in Romans, not at all. We were the enemies of God. goes back to what we saw back up in verse 1. We are now at peace with God, right? Before we were his enemies, now we're at peace with God. It's a pretty complete picture. But having been his enemies, what happened? We were reconciled to God. Here's the next big theological word that we have in Romans. We've had justification, we've had redemption, we've had propitiation. Now we have reconciliation. Reconciliation means to be brought into right relationship. Before, we were definitely not in a right relationship with God. We see this word or or use this word sometimes with respect to our relationships or marriage, right? You see this a lot of times with marriage, a husband and wife relationship. Why would a husband and wife need to reconcile or be reconciled? Well, because something's wrong between them, right? There has been some kind of problem between them. His fault, her fault, whoever's fault, there's a problem that exists. It's in the way of them having a right relationship with each other. And so we use that word, right? We say they need to be reconciled. Well, this is like that. There was a problem between man and God, between us and God. That chasm existed between us. We were on the opposite sides of the wall. We were on the opposite sides of the front line. Put whatever analogy you want in there. There was a problem between us and God. But now that we've been justified, the problem has been fixed. We have been reconciled to God. And keep in mind... There was nothing that God needed to fix on his side. You know, when you talk about the marriage thing, is it his fault or her fault, right? There was nothing that was God's fault. God was not the problem, just to keep that straight. We were the problem. The problem was on our side, but God intervened on our behalf to fix the problem that we had with him. How did he do that? Through the death of his son. So really, this is the same thing that Paul was saying In verse 9, there he said we were justified by his blood. Here we are reconciled through his death. The blood and the death of Christ is, is essential for this to take place. There is no justification. There is no reconciliation without the death of Christ on the cross. We are declared righteous and we are brought into a right relationship through his blood. And he finishes up the verse with more of the same Um, is verse 9 as well, where he says, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And again, you see how this all ties together. Having been reconciled through his death, we are saved by his life. As Christ was raised, so we too will be raised to new life. Again, not wanting to get too far ahead, but this concept gives us a taste of where Paul's going to go when we get to chapter 6. There he'll talk about our identification with Christ in his death as well as in his life. 
He says in verse 4 of chapter 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There is that identification with Christ in his death as well as in his life. So we have that complete identification and hope that is found as those who have been justified, brought into a right relationship with God through faith in the work that has been accomplished in his Son. So again, we have Paul's argument that if God was willing to die for us, to sacrifice his Son on the cross while we were enemies, sinners, ungodly, provide that for us, do that on our behalf, then we can also expect that he will keep us from his wrath, save, saved from his wrath, saved by his life. That is the love that he has shown us that gives us hope, that allows us to live our lives in hope of what is to come. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can change it. This is what is in store for the believer. Now we come to verse 11. This will be the last verse we look at for today. He says, and not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now we have an exultation back in the picture, right? That confident rejoicing that we had up in verse 2 and in verse 3. Now we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here he completes it. He brings it to the proper focus. Our exultation really is where? It's in God, right? Because of what he has done through Jesus Christ. What was that? His death, his blood, the gift of his sacrifice on our behalf. This is the entire reason that we can rejoice because of the work of Christ on the cross. We rejoice confidently because of what he has done. Christ's work on the cross was the act of love on our behalf. That was the outpouring of love from God. It's what brought us into that right relationship with him. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now, we have now received the reconciliation. That's where the reconciliation comes from, from Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. We were not fixing that relationship on our own. We had no way of satisfying the righteous demands of God's justice on our own. Only Jesus Christ could do that. As we close, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's one other major passage that deals with the reconciliation. I just want to show you what Paul says here as well. And we'll end with this for today. In the first part of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, he talks about the groaning of our own bodies, longing for the bodies of glory that await us, similar to what we talked about, the exaltation in Romans chapter 5. But down further, look down at verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll see him start to talk about this. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there's a change in us, right? A change from what we were before. We are now a new creature, a new life. Again, this is that bursting through the wall. Verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Here we have that same concept, that same word, reconciliation, brought us into right relationship. And he goes on with it in verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So in verse 18, we had the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, we have the word of reconciliation. Now, this does not mean the work of reconciliation. That's what Christ accomplished in his death. That was his work to reconcile us. But the ministry and the word of reconciliation, that's ours. That has been given to those who are reconciled. And he covers that in the next verse where he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The word of reconciliation is the gospel. The ministry of reconciliation is sharing the gospel. It's being an ambassador for Christ, going out and preaching to the world, be reconciled to God, sharing the life-changing message of the good news of Jesus Christ. As those who have believed in the gospel, we have ourselves become reconciled to God. That is now our responsibility, to preach that same message to others. This is the plan of salvation, that God loved us, sent his son to die for us while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, and he rose again from the dead. Now, as those who have believed in that work, he has credited his own righteousness to us, paid the debt for us, and through faith he has credited that payment to our account reconciled us, brought us into peace with God, where we stand in his grace, confidently rejoicing in the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. This is God's marvelous plan of salvation, the wonderful demonstration of his love where he has poured out his love into our hearts through his spirit, forever sealing us in him for all eternity. That's God's plan of salvation, to bring us into a right relationship with him. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and, Lord, we just give you praise for the wonderful gift of salvation that you have provided. We thank you, Lord, that that you took us as sinners, that, that you, because of your love, Lord, you came down and died on a cross for our sins paid our penalty for us that we could not pay, that we were helpless to pay, Lord. We could not accomplish that on our own in any way. And we thank you, Lord, that that you took that upon yourself. Lord, we just pray that it would be a burden on our hearts to not just sit back as those who have been reconciled to you, but, but, but to be seeking out others, Lord, that need that same reconciliation, that we would share the gospel, that we would be diligent in that, Lord, that we would be faithful in that. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to just uh, understand your word better each day, Lord, so that we can just know more and more about you and how we should be living our lives as your children. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would just help us to be faithful to you in every area of our lives. Pray, Lord, now that you would be with us as we go into the next hour, as Josh brings us the word. Just pray, Lord, that you would 
Give us understanding into the book of Revelation once again. Pray, Lord, that that would be uh, something that would edify us, Lord, encourage us, and that we would just be able to use in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.